And being an entrepreneur, you know, we came to it later in life. I mean, I already had a corporate career and I was close to 40 when I started Mona. And uh, I think that uh, it needed to be, there was a really high bar for starting a company, right? It needed to be something we truly cared about. Welcome to 20 Minute Leaders. Just sit back, relax and learn from the leaders of today. It's a journey. Each one is different, unique, inspiring. Let's get started. 20-Minute Leaders is a proud supporter of Make-A-Wish Israel and Tech2Peace and is in proud collaboration with Secret Chord Ventures, J-Ventures, Riverside FM, Fusion VC, Birthright Excel, J-Impact, Leap, Google for Startups, and Hippo, and in media partnership with C-Tech. Hello and welcome to another episode of 20-Minute Leaders. Today, I'm with Yotam Oren, the co-founder and CEO of Mona. Disclaimer, I'm an angel investor in this startup. And Mona is a startup developing an intelligent monitoring platform for AI and automations in a variety of industries. With over 15 years of experience as a, as a technology executive, Yotam gained extensive experience bringing data-driven products into the enterprise software market. Prior to Mona, he was a growth and product executive at ADP and an associate partner at McKinsey. And Yotam holds a BSc in computer science from Ben-Gurion University and an MBA from the University of Michigan. It's going to be a really great conversation. I'm excited to hear your story, the story of Mona, the story of what's happening with AI today, the different opportunities that are presented as the whole world is transitioning to to leverage AI, what that means for organizations, what that means transitioning from research to product, and where you are in all of this and where Mona is situated across all of this. And so thank you again for being here, Yutam. You have a really interesting background leading up to your co-founding of Mona, including some uh, basketball, some engineering, some consulting. Tell me a little bit about your journey connecting the dots for me backwards. Some, some may say I've been all over the place, uh, but uh, I, I, like to, I like to say that every, every step in the way led me to the next step and, and taught me something new. Uh, uh, but I, I have, you know, I, I have, you know, I have, um, you know, in, in my professional career, post-military, post-university, I've been around data my entire career. I started as a, as a big data engineer, um, you know, working actually in the very early days of smartphones on bringing mapping and navigation into, into the handhelds. This was before Google Maps, you know, was, was all over the place and, and free and kind of, you know, made tools, the, you know, navigation uh, software less you know, less uh, relevant, maybe, from paid providers. And so I was working for a startup that did that for a little bit um, and working on actually big data problems, right? I mean, you know, local geo geolocation data was big data back then. We didn't call it that, but that's what it was. <laughs> and, uh, and I later um, left engineering and became a management consultant in McKinsey. And, you know, a lot of people... <laughs> Look at that, you know, funny a little bit, you know, McKinsey consultants becoming entrepreneurs. Um, but, you know, it's what I love, you know, and earnestly about the consulting experience that, that really set me up well to be an entrepreneur is that it's almost like a really fast track to see a ton of industries and how things work. 
And taking things that work well in one industry and transferring them to another or finding common themes is something I'm really passionate about and kind of love, which is why I'm, you know, later down the line, you know, years later, a decade later, I'm working on this horizontal platform, right? That serves multiple industries. Um, but even at McKinsey, I was doing a lot of data work. Uh, back then in early 2010s, we used to call it big data officially. And a lot of the questions were around, oh, we collect all this operational data or, you know, a logistics company or a bank. How do we leverage this data to make better decisions? This was the early days of investing in machine learnings. The infrastructure wasn't there. It was very expensive to produce models um, and develop them. Um, no, most companies did not have an army of PhD data scientists yet, but we were definitely, a lot, there was a lot of talk about that, and it was definitely headed that, in that direction. Um, and then I, I joined corporate America, and I worked in a Fortune um, you know, 500 called ADP in the HR tech space. I actually led an analytics team that worked on a recommendation system of sorts, which again, um, was in, in this early day. Um, um, I, I'd say like less sophisticated or more traditional, uh, predictive capabilities and not as, um, as, as advanced as, as they exist today, but firsthand experience with how challenging it is to drive adoption of, uh, machine learning in the enterprise. And then fast forward to today, you know, in the last four years with Mona, um, with, um, you know, two brilliant friends and, uh, former Google engineers. Um, and, you know, we're all passionate about, you know, helping organizations with, with, with this shift and of, of adopting an AI, AI in a, in a broader scale, which I know we'll talk about. I love it. Okay. Well, let's, let's dive in. Tell me about AI in yeah. 2022. What's happening? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, it's so much money has already been poured in. Right, investment has been sky high, but uh, most will agree that, to a large extent, the practice has remained largely a research-oriented practice. What I mean by this is that, still, uh, to a large extent, we build data science teams and we hire data scientists, and we tell them your job is focused on data, on understanding business problems, on collecting a lot of data, on a modeling, right, on creating models, leveraging this data to solve those business questions. Um, um, but the end product of your work is a model. And, uh, and, and once you develop a model and you test it and you, you, know, you hand it over, over this virtual organizational fence, um, and it becomes someone else's problem. And uh, this is, you know, I think that a lot of the money that's been poured into AI programs across industries to date has been working this way, where the data scientists sit in the lab and they're building this amazing, those amazing models, but the level of adoption in the organization is still not as high as it should be. And partially it is because there's great research, but there's no operational readiness. It's not yet a great product in a lot of cases. Now, of course, I'm generalizing and there are cases where it succeeded. More and more organizations started realizing that this is not a way to run their multi-million dollar AI programs. And they yeah. need to start shifting, need to start thinking about product discipline, about how to adopt more product-oriented thinking into those AI programs. And, um, and part of it is about ch changing the role of the data science teams, changing the role of the AI teams, making them more like product teams. The rise of machine learning engineering is a, is a part of this, this shift and transition, the rise of this 
practice called ML Ops, Machine Learning Operations is part of this, which is about incorporating and introducing software engineering best practices and production best practices into AI. Um, and of course, the area we're in, which is called you know, monitoring observability, is, uh, is, a, is an element of this uh, transformation and shift too. And, and uh, so if we're know, looking at monitoring observability, you know, in, though I, I like how you call it the, an, an intelligent machine learning monitoring platform. What, is, what, what does this actually mean? Why do AI teams need a monitoring and observability platform? So um, let's start with this, that with the fact that um, monitoring is a foundational need because it's part of uh, product discipline, right? You don't want your customers being the first ones to find out that something is, is wrong, right? Now, predictive models are notoriously difficult to test in the lab. You do the best you can to validate. You, you put them in the business process in production, and now they serve your customers and there's, you know, the volumes go up, et cetera. And, um, but you want to know if something is, if it's working as intended. You want to know if it's working as well as, as it should. Now, why do you need intelligent monitoring? So like the fact that you need monitoring is kind of a given in that sense, right? That it serves the business, the business is relying on it. Intelligence, a lot of it is because problems to a large degree in AI start really small, um, and are hidden in plain sight before they burst into the surface. And when they burst into the surface, a lot could be at risk, not just revenue left on the table or, you know, a chatbot going rogue. There's reputational risk. Um, there might be significant money risk, for example, in a credit card, uh, you know, fraud detection system that processes billions of dollars, right? Um, and, uh, and, you know, every prediction that goes wrong could be, you know, meaningful losses to a credit card processor or a bank. Um, and, um, and, and, and these things are, you know, these things are impacting real people. AI is used for performance management, the talent, it for recruiting, right? To approve and reject, um, credit, you know, loans. Um, so there's real implications for real people and you want to know when something is going wrong. Um, the key with intelligence is that problems start really small. So you want to catch them when they're still small, when the impact is not as big, when uh, maybe your business KPIs haven't even suffered yet, and you can be proactive in addressing them before you go through. And you really need to be intelligent because how do you go small? How do you go grand? Right? There are so many ways to slice and dice, um, you know, credit card transactions. Right? For example, you might have run a billion a day. Right? How do you how do you slice and dice? How do you find the pockets where there might be issues? So it definitely is not an easy. Like, it's a big undertaking. Okay, so if we're looking at it from a product perspective, mm -hmm. what have you realized about the different ways that these AI teams are working and that you've then tailored your own solutions to them? Sort of what is the, I guess, the consumer behavior of these data science teams or these research teams that you said, okay, this is sort of the pattern that we're seeing and this is how we're going to be shaping our product to fit their needs. Yeah, I mean, so number one, um, they um, need to, they want to be independent. Um, they want to be able to iterate independently and be less dependent on other 
uh, subgroups or teams within their organization, such as DevOps or other engineering teams. And so it needs to be a tool that they can use. Um, it needs to be accessible to them. They need to be able to tailor it to their problem because every AI use case is a snowflake and has its own unique characteristics and unique situation circumstances. And so they, it needs to be highly flexible and configurable. Um, and, and if you come in from the outside um, as a monitoring solution provider and tell the data scientist, I can tell you if your algorithms are working or not, I, they wouldn't believe you, right? So it needs to be the tools, process, the platform, but it needs to be moldable into working for them and, and for what they need to get out of it. Um, and finally, um, you know, it needs to not dominate their time, right? At the end of the day, it needs to benefit the research. It needs to um, provide them new information, like new insights, things they don't already know or can know themselves. But this need, doesn't need to be something that they spend their entire day in. You need to make them more efficient. Um, you know, one anecdote that is that, you know, the average uh, data science team will spend a third of their time on production break-fix and like investigations and, and, and trouble. Um, and this needs to make, to reduce that time to a minimum, right? To make, make it so that they deal, they still need to be accountable and they want to be accountable for the full life cycle. They want to be accountable for how their models and research perform in the business. They don't want to make, spend their days in production, and, you know, production troubleshooting. So it needs to be make them more efficient and not dominate their time. So if we're looking a little bit higher level at yeah. the space that we're in, mm -hmm. and uh, one of the things that we very briefly mentioned before we started the interview was, uh, you mentioned this idea of product-oriented AI, which is sort of in a relatively new thinking or, or an evolutionary thinking of uh, within the AI domain. Tell me a little bit about what you meant by that. Yeah, I mean, in a way, it's a, it's a, it's a set of best practices that organizations are starting to um, adopt in order to scale their AI programs the right way, take them out of the lab and put them into business. And make sure that the business can truly rely on, on those, on those AI-driven applications. Now, within product-oriented AI, what do we actually mean, right? Um, it means that there is more end-to-end -end accountability for outcomes and that's, um, that the AI team is the one that takes the accountability. It also means the success measure, success criteria for AI is no longer just about lab telemetry and ML telemetry, things like precision of models and recall, et cetera, but also actually where the business outcomes achieved or not, right? That's what the product is all about, right? That's what it's, it's there for. Um, and, um, and, and overall, it's just a better way to run uh, your, your AI program if you're a big organization. And it, it's a trend, product-oriented AI, right? It's not some sort of like IP, right? It's a trend that, that we see across industries and we're trying to organize it and, 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 you know, and call it out. Um, and, um, and it is, it, it doesn't, uh, by the way, it doesn't mean the end of research. It doesn't mean less research or less investment in research. In fact, teams that adopt product-oriented AI practices 
eventually benefit the research. They become more effective in their research because that complete life cycle, additional data that you can get from looking into your, you know, your full life cycle and how your AI performs in business can actually teach new things to the research, right? Like add new value and add new insights into the research roadmap. So, um, so it's a complementary trend and it's, it's definitely one that is here to stay. I think that it's um, also something that organizing that, you know, executives and sponsors of AI programs relate to. MLOps, I think, is like is another term that's very important and, and, and relevant. Um, but it is definitely more of an operational term and more associated with essentially adopting engineering and IT practices where fact-oriented AI wraps around this, right? And uh, and and is the way is the way also you bridge the gap between the AI team and the business. Where where did you develop your own passion and enthusiasm for for this world? It's not a trivial um it's not a trivial company for an entrepreneur to go on a journey. Um I, I'm I'm just I'm curious where you know where your own passion came from in regards to this. How did this whole thing come about? Yeah, I mean, um, it's 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 a number of things, right? It's always it's always um, difficult to pinpoint the exact driver uh, behind bad thing, but it, but it combines a few things that I really enjoy. Number one, I've been around the data industry, so I know it, um, and um, and I'm a true believer in the value that AI can bring to a variety of industries. Um, and, and, you know, and really change our lives in a lot of ways. Um, and so I'm really excited about being part of enabling the, you know, the, like the growth in, in, in AI in general. Um, the second thing is that we, you know, it's a di really difficult problem to solve um, because it's a brand new category, because it requires deep technology, a big data system, et cetera. And so that's, more intellectually uh, challenging and, and, and exciting. And frankly, the team I work with, my co-founders, they wouldn't have been willing to take, to tackle a, a smaller problem, right? Hmm. It needed to be really big for them to go after. Um, and, um, and, and I, 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 I uh, benefit from this because I get to work with, you know, really smart folks on a really difficult problem. So, um, so that's, 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 that's another part of this. Um, and I, you know, I am, I am personally a data nerd, right? I love to, I love to look at data. I also love the idea that it's horizontal. I mean, I know this is like, you know, I can add more and more reasons here, right? But, um, it's, I've been horizontal most of my career and consulting has been horizontal. I like to work across industries. I think there's so much to learn, um, when you're not vertically focused and there's so much to, you know, to share across. Um, and so that's, that's beneficial too. And, uh, you know. It, and it being an entrepreneur, you know, we came to it later in life. I mean, I already had a corporate career and I was close to 40 when I started Mona. And uh, I think that uh, it needed to be, there was a really high bar for starting a company, right? It needed to be something we truly cared about to go after. And so the decision to go and become an entrepreneur at 40, that, that's not a trivial one. It's not. Um, and, uh, believe me, I, my wife and I had a lot of conversation, you know, many conversations about, uh, 
you know, whether to do it or not and whether it was the right time. I think that uh, at the end of the day, you know, um, I, uh, I, I realized when I came to this crossing that the fact that I was so excited about it when I was talking to it about to it, you know, about it to her and the fact that, um, I had all these, you know, everything, everything, every aspect of it sounded really exciting to me. Um, eventually made it a no brainer. Um, on paper, it might have been really difficult to decide to do that, especially, um, where, you know, as you may know, as an entrepreneur, there's often a financial compromise, which, you know, of course there was in my case. There's, um, you work longer hours, you, uh, you know, you definitely take, you know, some, some things take a hit, some other priorities, but, um, the level of excitement we had about this, um, the desire to work with these people who are also my friends outside of work. I mean, um, it, it really drove it home and made it a no brainer. Yotam, best of luck with Mona. Thank you so much for the time. Uh, I can't wait to share this with the world. Uh, we'll continue cheering. Um, and uh, thank you very much for being here with me. Thank you. Yes, of course. Happy, happy to have this conversation. 